Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. In this episode we're going to be looking into driving in the future. And of course when Physics World first asked me to look into this topic, my first thoughts were to science fiction with the flying cars of Blade Runner and Fifth Element and even Attack of the Clones and the autonomous vehicles of Total Recall, Logan and of course Knight Rider. But in the case of both flying cars and autonomous vehicles, you're not really driving in the future, rather flying and not driving in the future. But almost every conversation I've had with friends and colleagues recently about driving is with people wanting to or already having made the switch to electronic vehicles. In the opening quarter of 2018, Electric vehicles accounted for 2% of registrations of new vehicles in the UK. That's up from 1.5% this time last year, but it's nothing compared to the 48% of new registrations in Norway. It's a similar story in China, where 142,000 electric vehicles were registered in the first quarter of this year, which is a 154% increase on the same period in 2017. I went to the Blue Dot Festival in Cheshire, near Manchester, here in the UK, which is a festival of science, music and arts based at Jodrell Bank, of course the site of the iconic and wonderful Lovell Telescope, and took the opportunity to meet up with some scientists and engineers and influential thinkers on the future of travel and its impact on our energy needs. My plan to look into electric cars took an immediate detour when I met with Francis Hill, a senior lecturer on the MSc at the Centre for Alternative Technology. That detour began as I asked her what her view was of driving in the future. I think we're going to need to be working out how we do less of it. The, the amount of driving done at the moment is increasing and increasing and increasing and as soon as there's another motorway built there's, or extended, more people are using it and we all know the congestion. Uh, but essentially wherever we go, whatever we do, we're using energy uh, and whether we like it or not, even building the vehicles that we drive in is using a lot of energy and actually a fair amount of fairly nasty s- stuff to build them. Uh, energy consuming but uh, materials that have quite a lot of impact on the environment as well. What do you mean even like electric vehicles? Even Oh, very definitely, even like electric vehicles. Just think of everything that's in them. We're talking about uh, using less in the way of plastic bottles, um, but you know all the plastics that are in a car, you just don't sort of want to stop and think about it, really. Um, but we owe it to the world to stop and think about it. Um, you know, why, why not stop and think about the new car you're buying? And, uh, and its impact. But is that as simple as buying a second-hand car, or is it more to it? Well, OK, buying a second-hand car, you're not investing in the new materials. Somebody is. The more you drive, the more you use those materials, um, you, you run them down, bits fall off, you replace them. Second-hand cars... You've got to keep fixing them. Second-hand electric car that didn't break down, didn't have things go wrong with it. Is that my best bet for driving in the future? It probably is your best bet for driving in the future. We haven't yet transitioned to a hydrogen economy uh, that would be needed for refuelling, fuel-based sort of non-carbon polluting vehicles. Um, 
But whatever we do, we're going to have to find the energy to move those vehicles about from somewhere. Um, people aren't too happy to have wind turbines near their homes. Uh, yes, we can put them out, out at sea and we've got capacity to do more of that. Making wind turbines involves materials use too. Um, how much more and more do we do in the way of using materials to essentially grow our economy, grow our current activity, how much we do, how, how far we move. We're addicted to travel at the moment. And if we look at it like that, what do we think we should do about it? I don't have the solutions. Teaching on a master's course, I'm better at asking the questions. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so if you're... Are you advocating people staying at home and tending their own land, not going anywhere, not exploring? I think I'd encourage people to enjoy that, doing that for more of their lives because I think there's actually a lot of joy and happiness that people can find around their own homes. Uh, and all too readily, we hop in a car to go off and do something else when there's really plenty to do around at home I'm, yeah, yes I'm in a fortunate position I live in a house with a garden that I enjoy working in and not, that's not everybody's position, I completely recognise that uh, we also have the option to use public transport um, and for some of us that's an easier option than for others, for all sorts of reasons, but the more we can grow a public transport network the better, but then again public transport is using energy, we've got to keep that in mind we just need to stay aware of, of things and recognise that there's choices we're making. And it's not just choices for us, it's choices for which we're responsible in relation to the next generation and the next generation. Let's take an example. I'm here at the Blue Dot Festival. I've come from Bristol. Yes. If I was going to come here by public transport, I would have had to take a train from Bristol to Manchester, which costs £90 return, and then got a train from Manchester out to Goostree, and then I would have had to get somehow from Goostree probably a taxi or walk at that point. Um, And if I drive, it costs me something like £25. Yes, the trains are stupidly expensive. Um, One way and another, the government is actually subsidising flight over subsidising land-based transport, land-based public transport, and that's criminal. Listening in to the latter part of our conversation was Professor Kevin Anderson, who's Professor of Energy and Climate Change at the University of Manchester, and he's recently been involved in the RACER project, which is led by the Tyndall Centre, working with the Institute for Transport Studies at the University It's called RACER because what we're looking at is rapid acceleration of carbon emission reductions in that particular sector. It makes a nice little title of RACER. And what we're saying there is if we are serious about our Paris commitment in holding temperatures to 2 degrees centigrade or ideally 1.5, then we have to dramatically reduce our emissions from high emitting sectors and the cars have been one of those. And that virtually all the work that's been done so far, whether that's in government work or academic work, or in the industry, uh, they're, they're simply not addressing the rates of change that are necessary, the rates of mitigation of reductions in emissions. And so we've said, right, how do we accelerate the rates of reductions that have been discussed? And when you play that out in terms of the technology, you can't deliver it fast enough. Though you can deliver it by a particular time in the future, but climate change cares about the total amount of emissions that occur in the meantime, the cumulative emissions of CO2. 
When you take that view, you have to reduce the emissions almost immediately. And there, what you were saying is actually the demand side has to work alongside the technology. And so we're looking at significant reductions in vehicle kilometres um, in the order of 60% or so. Um, increases in load factor, in other words, more people per car, and the average there's typically now about 1.2, 1.3 people per car in the UK. So looking to increase that. So in fact, the number of passenger kilometres will go down, but not quite by quite so much. And then on top of that, you, you align that with the shift to EVs or possibly hydrogen or some other low emission, uh, it could even be possibly bi be biofuels, some other low emission form of car use. Um, but in, in making that move away from significant use of cars, is to say, well, where we do use them, they should be used appropriately. Probably within five to 10 years from now, where we're driving, how we're driving, and what we're driving, and why we're driving will, will have changed. And certainly going beyond that, sort of the 10 to 15 year time frame, I think things could change really quite rapidly. So if we're going to address climate change issues, then there are some very clear things that come out of that in terms of, um, and in fact, not just climate change, but broader sustainability. There's some very clear things that come out of that um, in terms of uh, our driving. Firstly, when you think about, when we talk about driving today, what we typically mean is a person like you, you or I getting into a car and going from A to B. Well, what's that mean? That means, in my case, 90 kilograms of flesh, getting in a car that weighs 2,000 kilograms to drive 10 kilometers to pick up 10 kilograms of groceries or something like that. Now, really, when you if you stood back from that, thought, well, isn't that a reasonable thing to do? That everywhere that we go, just a few kilometres, we carry 2,000 kilograms of metal with us? Is that a reasonable thing in a world that's trying to address issues of sustainability and resource use? Is it a reasonable thing if 9 billion people are trying to do something quite similar from a space point of view, from an emissions point of view, from a fuel point of view, from a resources point of view? Um, and also, just from a time perspective, is that going to be viable? So I think we've, we're sort of reaching a point, almost like a tipping point in terms of in terms of our use of the car. And when I say our use of the car, of course, we also mean typically they're you know, privileged people in the Northern Hemisphere. And even with our own country, that, that driving is driven by, is, is carried out by a relatively small percentage of the population, not by everyone by any means. There are lots of people who do not use cars very often. Um, there are some people who never really have, don't even have, have direct access to a car. At the same time, we're seeing these other sets of pressures from climate change and sustainability. We're also um, seeing changes in the industry, now, changes like the autonomous vehicle discussions, which I think can be um, exaggerated as to how far they've got or where they're going to take us. I mean, they will not automatically be necessarily a good thing. And I think we have to be very careful to make sure that, as with all technologies, technologies are contextual. We have, they, they, they are applied or they, they integrate with society, as social, with us as social beings. So quite where that ends up going, I think it's something we have to be, make sure that we manage and we direct it in the in appropriate way. So for me, if we are going to try and just climate change, I don't see electric vehicles as a game changer. I see them as probably important to some degree, but I do see electric bikes as a game changer. So in our local environment, in our cities and in our urban environment, I would say that I would, I would like to move away from cars, whether it's EVs, electric cars, or internal combustion engine cars. The idea of moving around small distances in large lumps of metal is, is not a reasonable thing to do, and we've normalised an unreasonable thing. And in those environments, we can have public transport, we can use bikes, we can use electric bikes, we can walk, we can then start to redesign our cities so people can live within them, so they don't have to travel quite so far anyway. So we, can, we, should, we should be redesigning our, um, our urban and our city landscapes for us as humans to live within them. But when you come to the rural environment, and that's in the, where I live in, in, in the UK, part, partly in the rural environment, or where I work in Sweden, a very rural environment, um, there I think that there may well still be a role, possibly, for, for cars in some form. Um, so if you can imagine an autonomous EV-type future, 
then these vehicles maybe are not owned by anyone so, so specifically. They're almost used as a, as a form of minibus. And actually, that's almost better than our current arrangement for public transport. I mean, there's no point having scheduled buses in areas where you have a 40-seater bus that occasionally has someone on it, which is my experience both in Sweden and in Scotland. I think maybe having a vehicle that's a, the sort of appropriate size for the few number of people that are going to be using them on a slightly more ad hoc basis is probably a, a more appropriate way of using resources. And there that could work quite well with an EV vehicle that's autonomous. Um, or of course it could have worked equally well with an EV vehicle that had a driver as well. And so if you want an employment point of view, maybe the security point of view, maybe there's some merits to, to not bother them with the autonomous side. But so if you like, there's, there's the two elements there to the role of the car, the role of the driver in the future. One is in the urban and city region where I think it probably should, should not have a role other than perhaps for some issues to do with disabilities and so forth. Um, and the other one is in the uh, rural environment where I think it may well have a significant role, um, but, but significantly change in terms of ownership. The picture I was getting by this point, and to be honest, in the research I was doing, was that driving in the future would not be, at least in the near future, about flying cars and everybody whizzing around in electric vehicles, but more a revamped public transport system where electronic driverless vehicles are the preferred option for a significant majority. Mike Taylor is doing a PhD in the Power Network Group at Manchester University. He's looking into the ways that the changes we make in society will affect the UK power grid. I don't think that we can, with our current infrastructure, I don't believe that we could just all change to an electric car today, plug it in the wall and everything will be fine. I think we'd, we'd run into a lot of problems with peaks. The thing that a lot of researchers are starting to look into now is what happens when people who've, been drive, who've driven to work in their electric car, they've depleted their battery, they go home and they stick their charger in the house that's going to be a huge surge on on the electricity grid because if everyone did do that at six o'clock plug their car in we'd probably blow a substation somewhere um, there is some storage if you think of in denorig in wales there's a hydroelectric power station there which is energy storage but without storage you always have to have the load more or less matching the supply I, i've always heard the story about uh, when eastenders is on people go and put a cup of tea on or something yeah. like that and and things the solution like, is to stop watching EastEnders. Right? <laughs> or to never start. Um, yeah, that, that's I mentioned Denori Power Station. You often hear about, like you say, EastEnders, and that's when that, that power station actually only provides 20 minutes of power. But it's those moments when we hit a peak and we need the power, a, bit, a lot of power, to cope with surges, that's when it'll be used and it is cups of tea moment, all the kettles go on, World Cup And electric cars presumably is a much bigger power surge than, than you get for a cup of tea. If Take, take the example of uh, a very fast charging car, it'd be, it'd be a very high power, much higher than a kettle and if everyone did do that at once, it probably would blow a substation somewhere. So what what can you do to kind of mitigate the, the, the problem of a, the surge in electric cars? So one of the things that's been proposed is smart charging so you plug it in but it's not immediately starting to charge the battery you could have uh, it scheduled to come on later at night when, when there's less demand in the system there, you could also just charge more slowly so if you have an amount of energy you need in your battery 
and if you have a rapid charge, which people would probably love, but 15 minutes, that's a higher power going through the cables than if you were to charge over eight hours and gradually charge it up. So it's managing these peaks in electricity demand is, is the main issue around electric cars from my point of view. A recent study suggested that covering just a small percentage of the Sahara Desert, although a large area still, with solar panels could provide all the energy needs of the planet. Whether that's an overstatement or an understatement, I'm not sure, but the principle is interesting enough. Perhaps we don't need to cover the desert, but rather cover the roofs of our houses to harness the power of the sun. Back at the Blue Dot Festival, I met with two engineers working on a project at Durham University, which takes that one step further, putting the solar panels on the car itself. I'm Joe and I'm an engineer at the Durham University Silica. So I'm Emily and I'm an engineer. The society is called DURM, Durham University Electric Motorsport, and we are a student organisation. Uh, we have an engineering team and a business team, and between the two of us we fundraise the money through sponsorship and then use that money to build a solar car which competes in the Bridgestone World Solar Challenge. It's probably about four metres long and about two metres wide, with... Um, most of the surface of, is covered in solar panels and it's a small catamaran style design with a driver's cockpit on the left hand side designed to be very aerodynamic it's a four wheel car designed to be go as, as fast and efficient as possible so how fast does it go? it goes um, 100 kilometres an hour is the fastest it's ever gone but you can't go that fast on the, on the road so it goes about 70 okay. and is it, is it road standard? can you drive it? So yeah. in Australia we do drive it on the road, so it has to adhere to like road, has to be road legal. So there's certain specifications like you need to be able to see the number plate on the back. Um, has to obviously be driver safe. So there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that the driver is safe. So if there was to be a crash or anything was to go wrong, that they're up to sort of standards. So. And there's there's only one seat. Yes. So how realistic is it that we could have solar powered cars in the future that had passengers in them? So the competition that we enter, there are sort of different categories. So we um, compete in sort of, it's a race basically, how quickly we can do it, how efficient, how fast. But there are other categories where um, it's more about how many passengers you can take and whether you can get them from A to B using solar power. With the competition obviously being every two years, they make minor changes to sort of regulations and rules um, and then some major ones as well. So the current car is too big for the uh, like allocated amount of solar panels that we can have on the car. So we sort of adapted it between 2015 and 2017, um, whereas now we're building a new one which will be shorter and smaller. So the sort of length of the car and the top bit will only be the size of the array of solar panels that like, we're allowed. So in terms of that, we're saving a lot of weight. We're also trying different things sort of technically and mechanically. Um, some things worked really well last time, some things didn't. It's just sort of working out where to go next. Is it about improving the efficacy of the solar panels as much as anything else? So we don't do the solar panels because it's, we don't really have the facilities. So we buy the solar panels in so that we can't really control that. So we move with the industry on that. But you can get different types of solar panels with different chemistries on them, which are more or less efficient. But the regulations like control how much, how much area of panel you're allowed with that. So you save weight but not... not I suppose it's making the car as aerodynamic as possible. That's sort of the big, how we can make it more efficient. 
we've got so much power that we can use is making sure that we don't lose it because we've got some drag where we don't need it. Also we drive the car in Australia obviously because we need the solar panels charge best when it's a clear sunny day yeah. so English clouds. I assume that you're charging a battery inside the car. Yeah. Yes. So it's not direct power from this. From this yeah. So we have a battery with the, over the course of the race we can have so much power coming from a source that isn't the solar panels today so it runs about even when we're running about 70 kilometers an hour based on how much power input if it's clear and sunny but if it's rainy or a bit cloudy we can still drive it but it's it's charging less than it's sort of running on so have you had a go in i've sat in it but i haven't driven it um we've got a driver is um we've got two drivers there's uh, sarah and um ellie who uh you've got to be very small to fit inside and um Point of view. Yeah, but is it also a weight thing? I mean, yes, yeah, so we design it for so even if they're not the same weight, we make it up to be 70 kilograms just so it's balanced and on that side. So you can weigh as much like up to 70 kilograms, and then we just make up the difference. Okay. So I've got no chance, basically. I think you struggle with the height thing more than anything else. <laughs> well, that's very, very I can, kind. I can barely fit in, so yeah. So your engineer is working on an actual solar car, yeah. it's a real thing, it works. What do you think the likelihood is of people driving solar-powered cars around our streets anytime soon? I think that the efficiency of the solar panels is constantly getting more efficient. I think they're about 30% efficient at the moment. They've got a long way to go before I think it's viable to have cars being completely solar panel run. But, yeah, it's getting there. The more likely scenario probably would be to have the solar panels, like, fixed on your house or your garage and just charge on an electric car yeah. with that power than carry the solar panels around with you. But um, as they get lighter and more efficient, maybe it will become the better way to do it. I was looking at an infographic from Environmental Research Letters which sets out the low-to-high-impact personal choices that we can all make to reduce our contribution to climate change, lower our carbon footprint effectively. And the low impact things are things like upgrading your light bulbs, but the high impact things include switching to an electric car or going completely car free. The highest impact thing is having one fewer child, but I'm not going to start advocating for that. But it's interesting to note that one round-trip transatlantic flight could undo all the good that you've done by switching to an electric car or switching to a plant-based diet. But according to this infographic, the most effective ways of reducing your carbon footprint are to have fewer children, live without a car or have an electric car, with obviously living without a car being considerably more effective than having an electric car, buying green energy avoiding transatlantic long-haul flights or any flights at all really I suppose and eating a plant-based diet. But ideal futures see us step away from the path that we're on at present. The changes that the people I was speaking with foresee or at least hope to see require a sea change in public perception and opinion. Motoring is a passion for some people and quite possibly a high motivating factor in those people who deny the science of climate change, as we discussed in our episode with the Nobel laureate Mario Molina back in April. But I wondered whether Professor Kevin Anderson thought that humanity would take this path. We have choices 
significant choices still for our future in relation to two degrees centigrade. I don't think we have choices for 1.5, sadly. I think we've lost that. I think the, the, the boat sailed um, and, and we've let it sail. But for two degrees centigrade, we still have choices. Uh, at the moment, though, I think the choices are starting to be improved. We are starting to think about these things more carefully. I think the rate at which we're doing that is far too slow. Um, and uh, particularly within the political realm and particularly within a lot of co-opted, what I would call co-opted science and scientists, rather co-opted scientists, not science. Um, so I think we're going to go to, go to hell in the handcart. I think we're going to head towards three to four degrees centigrade of warming and we'll, with all the um, apocryphal outcomes that will come from that or the, 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 the uh, catastrophic outcomes that will come from that, which will initially be felt by poorer people elsewhere in the world who are low emitters and typically non-white, but eventually will come back to bite us as well and our own children. So the wealthy people in the Northern Hemisphere who have caused the problem will not escape the problem we have caused, ultimately. Um, but where do we go down that route is still a choice. So if I was a betting person, which I'm not, but I'd put 95% chance we'll we will choose to fail. But we still have a 5% chance we could choose to succeed, which is why people like myself and many others work in these areas, and why we have NGOs involved, why we have good politicians involved, why we have you know, people at events like this talking about these issues. We hear a lot about bad politicians. You've just said the word good politicians. Um, I think most politicians are good politicians. I may disagree with almost all of them, but I think most of them are good politicians trying to do good work. It's easy to criticise policymakers. We live in a democracy, and to be honest, most of us are policymakers in that democracy because we, we can vote, we can engage with our policymakers, we can write to them, we can see them in their surgeries, we can write to the ministers, we can protest. And we don't, in Britain, we tend to moan down the pub. Yeah, that, that, does not, that is not an, it's not an adequate response to democracy. We need to moan down the pub and then have some action around it. Um, so uh, I may disagree with most of the policymakers, but they're hours along, they're trying to do good, and they've got a very difficult job to do. Britain, uh, in, in Sweden, is not a cynical society. It's, it has scepticism, which I think is really healthy. Britain is highly cynical now. We don't trust our policymakers, we don't trust the lawyers, we don't trust the police, we don't trust the teachers, we don't trust our politicians, we don't trust the academics. And we have to start to move away from that, that most people are trying to do good work within a very constrained environment, but we constrain that environment ourselves. So um, I don't want to go down the easy route of just criticising the policymakers. The policymakers are, are letting us down on climate change, but they're letting us down and the scientific community, the academic community, is party to that. We are not pushing the policymakers anywhere near as hard as we will say that they need to be pushed when we talk away from microphones. So most of the, the colleagues that I have, and I'm not going to say directly in the Tyndall Centre, but mo most of the colleagues I work with on climate change issues um, internationally, I would say, are deliberately underplaying the scale of the challenge we face and the scale of the implications if we fail. And they know they're doing that, and when we talk privately over a pint of beer, they admit that. But they will not say it in public. And that's why we're using every scam under the sun to make sure that the, the, what we give to policymakers is broadly in line with what the policymakers just about want to hear. And that is not our job as academics. So if we're going to look to anyone to blame for this, well, I'm going to look, say, look at my own community. Um, now, obviously, we're not solely to blame, but I think we are an important part and we are paid by the public purse to be, uh, to be careful in our work and honest in our communication. And I think we are being careful in our work, but I do not think we're being honest in our communication. Living in a city like Bristol, I can try to walk instead of driving as much as I can and often edit this podcast and do other work whilst travelling on trains rather than driving. The UK's government approach to public transport was described as criminal earlier and I can't help but think that making train travel financially similar to driving would be a high motivating factor for many who currently jump in their car 
rather than getting a train. Where car journeys are necessary in the future, it may be that autonomous vehicles will fulfil that role. But as I say, this podcast is about driving in the future, and you don't drive driverless cars. I suspect we'll return to this topic in a future podcast on not driving in the future. But the best option for all of us who simply must own a car and still wish to lessen our impact on the environment seems to be to have a reliable second-hand electric car which is largely powered by renewables like solar panels on the roofs of our houses. Clearly, with today's technology, that's not possible all year round today, but we're talking about the future, and it's something to aim for, I would argue. Even despite all the evidence, you still don't accept that we're affecting the climate with our activities. You can surely see the benefit of charging your car with free energy from the sun. They say you lose about a quarter of the price that you pay for a new car the moment you drive it off the forecourt. So why not buy a second-hand one and spend the money you've saved getting solar panels and a home battery? We've by no means exhausted this topic. Fortunately, this isn't the last Physics World Stories podcast, so I'm sure I'll return to this again before too long. But if driving in the future is designed to look after the planet as well as the needs of the people alive today, then renewable energies powering reliable second-hand electric cars seems to be what driving in the future should and could look like. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.